deep explanation in our uh, discussion today, though of course it's a very important one. And uh, the question I want to begin with as we uh, move into this topic of creation, if you look at your confession and you look at the, the chapters and uh, see kind of how things are put together, you can see that uh, we began with a discussion of the Holy Scriptures, which was a, a very necessary place to start for us, that the things we are talking about in here, the, the truths that we believe about God and uh, about uh, creation, etc., those things come from Scripture. And so it was fitting for us to begin with the topic of Scripture itself. And then secondly, it's also fitting that we move to the topic of God and uh, in His triune nature, etc., what He's like and, uh, and the Trinity, etc. And so we discovered, um, we, we spent some time going through that, talking about God Himself. And, if, and then we moved on in chapter 3 to discuss God's decree. And if you, uh, if you remember what we, how we defined God's decree, now we spent a number of weeks uh, working through this, but back in chapter 3 in paragraph 1, it said, God has decreed in Himself... And from all eternity, by the most wise counsel, uh, most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. That when we talk about God's decree, we're talking about the decision that, uh, that he made um, before time even. He determined the things that would come to pass. And so that's, uh, that's the decision, that's the um, um, thoughts of God that he made before time of how things will come to pass. Well, that's different than what we're going to get to in chapter 5, which is the discussion of God's providence. That's how those things work out in history. God had plans in eternity, and then uh, those things work out in history, and so that would be providence. Uh, and but in, in order for providence to take place, in order for those plans to work out in history, there has to be a place for those plans to work out. And so the uh, uh, chapter here is inserted, uh, the chapter on God's creation, because God made the plans. His, uh, he decreed what would come to pass back in chapter 3. And then in chapter 5, he's going to get to how those things work out in uh, creation. But in, in order for that to happen, we must first have creation itself. And so um, that's why the, uh, the framers here have put it in this position. We've got to have a place for God's decrees to work themselves out in his providence. And so we look to uh, chapter 4, and we're going to uh, begin there and, and work through uh, just the three paragraphs that we have in, uh, in this chapter right here. Uh, you see there, we've labeled the first one, the doctrine of creation. Doctrine of creation. And so paragraph one, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Okay? So uh, nothing super tricky in there, but I think maybe the best way for us to work our way through this is by means of those questions uh, that we have listed there um, of who's involved um, and when and why, et cetera, et cetera, because this 
this is a, a relatively basic uh, description of the doctrine of creation. So the first question we ask there uh, takes us to uh, Genesis 1.1. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in the early chapters of Genesis today. So go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. And the first topic being discussed in paragraph 1 here is the when. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so really the, the discussion of when is in the beginning, how things started. And, uh, and what was... Uh, being discussed here is the, the events. There's no statement about when that beginning happened, though it concludes with commenting that it's uh, in the space of six days. But uh, it doesn't take a stance as far as uh, whether this was 6,000 years ago, 6,500 years ago. That's not really the point. The main point is that God did it. God is the one who created. Uh, it came about at His pleasure, by His decision, by His action, and did so in the space of these six days. And so uh, the when is not so much when on the calendar as much as uh, when, meaning in the beginning, God created. Everything that came about came about by his good pleasure, by his decision, the things uh, that he brought into being. And of course, as we're preaching through the book of Genesis, we can see in Genesis chapter 1 and then a, a different picture of it there in Genesis chapter 2 of God doing these things, creating uh, all things, whether visible or invisible. And so the first question of when is uh, in the beginning and in the space of six days. The next question we have there is the question of who. Who did the work of creation? Who, who is it that uh, actually brought all things into being? And I've got a number of different passages there. And so what I would do is, um, I, I get, we can look them all up probably. They're uh, none of them too obscure. But if we go to Hebrews chapter 1 to find out who is it that created, we see in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 2 there, in these last days, He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So what do we notice there in the last part of that sentence? Who is it that created the world? Right? I, I, I sense the confusion, right? Because who, who actually created? It says he created. Who's he? God. How did he create? Through Jesus, right? Through the Son, right? So there's a close working together. And by the way, it, that's, that's less uh, confusion and more a picture of how uh, the Bible presents creation as, as the combined work of the members of the Trinity, that they themselves are intimately involved in the creation. And so we could say the Father created. He's the creator. And that's right to say that, right? And even in this verse here, it points out that that creation happened through the Son. And likewise, if we go to John chapter 1, and you see that great uh, statement there 
in, uh, in John chapter 1. Starting at verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, he being the Word, being the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we can say that the Son is the creator. All things were created through him. There's nothing created that, was, uh, that excluded him. There was, uh, without him was not anything made that was made. So you see the Father and Son working together intimately to bring about creation. And by the way, this is, this is one of the large points of difference when you're uh, speaking to someone, um, a Mormon missionary or something like that, and they want to talk about the fact that uh, we're talking about the same Jesus. After all, it's the same name, right? And Jesus Christ, and, and yes, he did these things, and there's a great degree of commonality. But when you go to look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is, who does, who does the Bible identify Jesus as in this passage? Creator. Well, as God, John 1.1, 1, 1, right? And then in, in verse 3, he was intimately involved in the creation of everything that was created. That he's the creator. He's not... Uh, just someone who comes along later and grows into godhood, as the Mormon doctrine would have us believe. And so we see here that the, the Father creates. He does so <clears throat> through the Son. Well, we're missing a member of the Trinity. What about the Spirit? Where do, we, where do we learn about the Spirit's involvement in creation? Is the Spirit involved in creation? Well, we can look at a couple examples. Go to Job chapter 26. And I need someone here with the King James, if preferably, if we've got it. Does anyone have King James? Uh, if you do, Job 26 and verse 13, would you read that for us, please? Job 26, 13. If not, I'll just... Go ahead. Thank you. By his spirit, he has garnished the heavens. The ESV says, by his wind. And in Hebrew, there's one word, ruach, which can be wind, can be breath, can be spirit. It's all the same word. And you can see how those are very closely related concepts, right? And so the King James translates that, that by his spirit, the heavens were made, right? He garnished the heavens by his spirit. ESV just says wind. Um, but... Uh, let's, let's give some support to the King James here and go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1. What do we see there in, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1? Someone want to read that to us nice and loud? Doesn't matter. The ESV does it right here, along with the King James. <laughs> So here we have in the very beginning, the, the second verse of the Bible in describing how it is that creation came about, that the created order was put together, was fashioned, etc. We have a statement there that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, was at work in the creation. That, that's not just written there to point out that the Spirit of God was like hanging out over the waters. That's where he lived at the time or something like that. It's, it's depicting his 
his involvement. He's brooding over the waters. He's, he's there in the process of bringing about creation. You see the Spirit of God there. And so when we talk about the who of creation, it is proper uh, to say that Father, Son, or Spirit is creator. Of course, that's because it's the combined work, the joint work of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit involved in creation itself. And so uh, who is it that, that is involved in creation the way the, the um, catechism here puts it? It pleased God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to do this. All are involved, right? So that's the when, that's the who. And now we get to the why of creation. Go to uh, Romans 11.36. We've been spending a lot of time looking at Romans 11.36, and it's because it goes to the purpose of creation, the purpose of, uh, that, that are behind what God does here in this uh, great conclusion to this uh, doctrinal section in the book of Romans. And... Of course, in Romans, he's talking about all that's involved in the creation or in, in, in the salvation of sinners all the way uh, from beginning to end here. And he gets to the conclusion. He finishes with that great doxology. And he says in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so the why of creation has to do with the glory of God. Why he did it was um, because it pleased God in the language of the confession. It pleased him for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. God wanted to put on display who he is. Put on display his nature. And if you think about that from our perspective as, as the creature, is it is it good for us to be ignorant of what our Creator is like? Is that a good place to be? Is that a, is that a helpful place for us to be in, uh, in our own thinking? No, right? Uh, as those who have been created by God, it is good for us to know what He is like. It's a, it, 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 it helps us to reflect his glory, to reflect on His glory. It helps us to recognize uh, what He's really like. It is good for us that He created us because we get to see His glory manifested, right? And so uh, all things here, and particularly in Romans chapter 11, the discussion is about salvation. But even we could back it up to creation itself. God does that to show His own glory. And sometimes when you say it that way, we might get the idea that, that God is some sort of a narcissist. That he's some sort of a megalomaniac. That he just has to have people uh, give him accolades and praise and, and as if he's some um, insecure person who, who needs to be praised and so is fishing for compliments. But that, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That it is good for us to recognize who God is and what He's really like. And so when we reflect on Him, when we, when we observe creation, when we observe um, uh, even scientifically, uh, when, we're, when we're doing research, you know, into the tiny little 
particles and subatomic this and that and or way out into space and the things that are huge, that's glorifying to God and it's good for us to see what God is like, right? And so God isn't just fishing for compliments. This is the best thing for us when we recognize what God is like. And so in creation, God has uh, shown himself, has manifested his glory in this way. Go back in Romans 2, chapter 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1. And uh, this section here where Paul is talking about how um, God is evident in creation. Let's start in verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, meaning in creation. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now that's, I, I love the, almost a play on words there. The invisible attributes have been seen, right? If something is invisible, you can't see it. But we can learn things about God. I think Paul puts it that way on purpose to catch our attention. We learn things about God, God who cannot be seen, God who is invisible. His attributes are invisible, yet we can discern them by looking at creation itself. And what are the attributes, what things do we learn about God when we look at creation itself from, from verse 20? What do we learn about God by observing the stars and the trees and weather patterns and creation around us? What do we learn? His power, right? His eternal power and divine nature, right? Those things are, are clearly seen when you, when you contemplate Mount Everest or you contemplate the sun, and you think, God made that. Where did that big giant thing come from? It didn't make itself. It was made by someone else. It was made on purpose. It was placed where it, where it is on purpose and us relative to it, etc. All those things. The complexity of nature. The irreducible complexity of nature that there are, there are um, uh, so many aspects. Like if you think about uh, the, a, a giraffe, for example. When... When I was in, uh, Andy and I were in Africa together a number of years ago, and we got to go on a uh, uh, one-day uh, safari in Rwanda, and I was looking forward to lions, and I was looking forward to some other things like that. Uh, we didn't get to see any lions. We got to see lots of giraffes, and I was not looking forward to giraffes because I thought they were dumb, okay? When we saw them, though, I did not think they were dumb, Okay. First of all, they're ginormous, right? They're eating from the tops of trees as if they're in a different, like, stratosphere. It's amazing uh, to watch them. They're so tall, and they're graceful. And the way we, dro we drove into this valley, and they were, like, positioned all facing different ways because they're all on guard. They're all on sentry duty watching for, for, you know, the lions to show up that I was hoping would show up and eat one, right? Well, that didn't happen in front of us. But, but with a giraffe, if you think about how long that neck is, and you think about, um, you know, if, if a giraffe with that big long neck, if he's grazing and he lifts his head up because a lion is coming, what's going to happen to him? He's going to pass out instantly, right? What happens when I stand up too quick 
and I'm only this tall, right, with my neck only this long. And I, you know, I, get, I might get lightheaded in that situation. A, a giraffe with a big old long neck, you know, if, if he were to get startled and going to run away, he'd, he'd throw his head up and pass out, boom, and he gets eaten, right? So God put in there a mechanism so that there's a, there's a, a little valve in his neck so that when he raises his head up, the blood stays in his head and he doesn't pass out. That's amazing. So that when the lion comes and, and goes to chase him, he lifts his head up and the blood stays in his head. He doesn't pass out and he's able to run off, right, and live. Well, you think about that same giraffe. He outruns the lion that one time, good for him. And, uh, and he gets to the end and he, and he decides he wants to drink some water. So he lowers his head down to drink water. What would happen to all that blood in that big old long neck that now that neck has been, the head has been lowered and he's drinking water. What's going to happen to his, to his head? It's going to explode, right? And, uh, and so that's, um, that would be a problem, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of the end of the species sort of thing. This is, it's, it's got to work together. And what God did was he put a valve in the other side of the neck so that when they lower their head, it doesn't get blood rushing down and piling into the brain and killing them. Right? So God designed a giraffe in such a way that he can, he can drop his head, drink water, raise it up and run off and not die in either case. And both of those things have to be there in order for him to survive. And God does that. And that can be multiplied a million times in a million different ways. We see God's power at work. We see his wisdom. We see his creativity. We see his beauty um, and his love for beauty in the way that he creates and the things that he creates. And so why did he create? Well, it's to manifest that, to put that on display. It pleased him for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, to show those things, to put them on display. And so uh, we see the, uh, the statement there in, in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, which applies specifically to salvation and how it works, but it applies as well to all of creation. And so... Why did God create? It wasn't because he needed us. It wasn't because he had some emotional lack of vacuum in his life and so he needed companionship. He, he, the father had the son, had the spirit. Right? He didn't create us for that purpose. He didn't create us to, uh, to complete himself in some way or even to have an object for his affection because the father had the son, had the spirit and they have affection for one another. But he created us for his good purposes, it pleased him to demonstrate to us, to manifest to us these things, the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, right? And so it's, it's, it's glorious that he did that. We get to benefit from it. We get to see it. We get to participate in it. We get to um, uh, revel in his glory in that, right? And so that's the why of creation. It wasn't, it wasn't because he had some need, but because he wanted to manifest those things about himself. Well, now we come to the what of creation. Go to uh, Colossians We'll start at verse 15, just so we can pick up the thought. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So speaking of Christ here, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. But here we have a discussion of the created order, not just the visible created order, but also the invisible created order. We don't, I don't know if we think about the angelic world, the spiritual realm, uh, when we think about creation, but he uh, created them as well. And so uh, all things, whether visible or invisible, and it seems like Colossians 1 here is talking about uh, spiritual authorities in the world, angelic forces, uh, angelic um, uh, beings that God created them as well, okay? And so it's not just uh, the physical stuff, it's also the invisible. I have a question for you. So in the beginning, looking at uh, uh, paragraph one of the confession, in the beginning it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of his, the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein. To create or make. Why does it say create or make? What do you think is going on there? Why, why would it need to be said two different ways? What's that? I didn't hear you. Physical versus non-physical. So one he creates, the other he makes, perhaps. What's that? Right, so there's intentionality behind creation, right? Yeah. He made man out of the dust. Yeah, so man is formed from dust, right? And, and we're made in a different way. There, we have both things going on in the created order itself, or in, in creation, in Genesis chapter 1. You've got both things. You've got God speaking things into existence. That's clear creation. Ex nihilo, we would say, from nothing. Right? There was no matter beforehand. There wasn't stuff that God refashioned, some pre-existing thing that, that God reshaped into, uh, into earth or something like that. He spoke it into existence, light and everything else. But there were also some things that he shaped and fashioned. Right? So he didn't speak man into existence out of nothing. He actually bent down, took up some dust, and formed it into man. So he made man in a different way. Right? So I think um, we're recognizing both aspects here, that, that it's not only that God formed the original stuff, but that from the original stuff, He also is the one who made, fashioned man and some other things. Right? Now that's different than saying God, God started it all in the beginning, and then by evolutionary processes over the course of millions of years, lightning struck and there was pond scum that turned into this and that, right? It, it, no, this is, this is saying that it is God who created the original stuff and God who did the fashioning of man, for example, right? That God is responsible for both. And so, uh, so here we have him uh, creating the visible world, the invisible world. We have him uh, sometimes creating ex nihilo and sometimes fashioning from the things that are there. But nevertheless, it is God's fingerprint that is on everything. It is God's handiwork. It is what he is accomplishing by his special work and power.
right? And then finally, we have the, the how statement in Genesis 1.31. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. I don't mean what means did God use to accomplish this, but how did it turn out? We saw in, uh, in each of the days, or, or often during the days, God would say, he's, uh, it, it would say that God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. And 131, finally, after the creation of man, very good, very good right? So you have a new statement. It was, it was very good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right? It's completed. There was evening. There was morning. The sixth day. So creation was, was very good. Now, why would it matter for us to think about the physical world being good? Why is that a revolutionary thought to some, to some uh, philosophies? What's that? Because it's not good now, right? So it leads us to ask the question, what changed? Right? Which, of course, in a couple chapters we're going to get to. But if it was created all very good and now we look around and see some things not very good, <laughs> it, it causes us to ask the question, what changed? But there are other questions also that, uh, that that statement answers or philosophies that it contradicts. What's that? Dualism, right? Dualism is the notion that spiritual things are good physical things are tainted. Spiritual things, immaterial things are good. Physical things that you can touch are sinful, are bad, are tainted. Okay? And, and a lot of times, um, you'll hear people uh, speak that way. They're just not being super careful. But if we hold to that distinction, that dualism, that division between the two that that in order uh, that, that something spiritual is good and something physical is bad, what problems does that cause us? What's that? We're physical, yeah. So Christ, from the spirit world, takes on flesh. Can't be. If flesh is bad, that can't happen. And so you have. You have different, uh, different theologies, particularly first century, second century theologies that begin to develop saying, well, uh, Jesus just appeared to be a man. He wasn't actually like us. He just appeared to be a man, right? Or on the other hand, you have the idea that, well, he was actually a man, but he couldn't really be God himself in the flesh because God is spirit and good and flesh is physical and bad and you can't have the two married. You can't have the two joined together in one person. And so you have, uh, you have New Testament books, particularly John and 1 John, dealing with that issue. Anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, right? What, what theology is he arguing against? What theology is he pointing out? He's, he's pointing out the problem of dualism. That that which is spiritual, that which is spirit is good, and that which is physical is bad and tainted uh, by virtue of the fact that all material things are tainted, but not in the Bible. From the very beginning, from the first chapter, we have a statement here that all of this physical world that was just created, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, right? And so we don't, uh, we don't ever say that 
just because something is physical, it is bad, uh, or whatever. A lot of physical things are bad, okay? There are spiritual things that are bad as well, but that's a different, a different discussion. But what's, uh, what's being stated here, what's being emphasized here is the fact that, that there is a truth of Jesus, the Son of God, spiritual being and entirely good and holy actually can take on human form and become one of us as a man, not only appearing to be a man, but actually one of us and be very good because Adam and Eve were very good. Creation was very good at least at this point. And so it causes a problem for us if, if we think about what it means to be human. I was having a conversation with someone uh, just recently on this topic, and they said, well, you know, it's, it's in our DNA as humans. Um, you know, sin is in our DNA. Well, you know, on one hand, I, I get what they mean. I get what they mean, that, that, that each of us has sinned. We, we follow after that course, but it's not an essential part of being human that we must be sinful. Were Adam and Eve truly human? Yeah. Were they truly human before they sinned? Yeah. They were truly human. So sin is not an essential definitional part of what it means to be human. Likewise, Jesus. Was Jesus truly human? Say yes. <laughs> truly human, right? Did he have sin? Say no. Right? So sin is not an essential definitional part of what it means to be human. Now, our experience, and everybody's experience except for the Lord Jesus, from chapter 3 of Genesis, is that yes, every, every human we've seen is a sinner, but that doesn't mean that it's an essential definitional part of what it means to be human, right? More on man uh, later, for sure. All right, and so... My last question there on this first paragraph, what is this paragraph rejecting or ruling out? What is this chapter in the confession rejecting or ruling out? Evolution, Evolution right? Alternate theories of the origins of the universe, right? I remember, and I, I, I laugh at this every time, I wish I could remember which famous atheist it was, was being asked the question of how life got here because he couldn't, he couldn't figure out how life started on this earth. And so his final answer, his final answer was aliens brought it. <laughs> he should have been laughed at, right? He should have been laughed at. And the guy interviewing, in, interviewing him kind of did, right? Where did the universe come from? God created it. Where did life come from? God created it, right? All right, paragraph two. We'll pick up speed here. Paragraph 2 moves on to the discussion of the creation of man. And so I'll read that to us in full here. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject 
to change. So it's kind of a convoluted sentence there, but, but uh, let's work our way through it here. First of all, I want to ask the question, how is man created similar to other creatures? How is man similar to other creatures in, in, in the context of um, Genesis? We have a physical body, right? So there's physicality. Yeah. What's that? Communication. Communication. So we can, okay, so we can communicate. Other animals can communicate with one another, right? Male and female, right? That's, that's consistent. You saw that again and again. Uh, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and, and how the uh, different species were created and they reproduce after their kind, etc., right? Male and female, like other animals. Right? And they're supposed to multiply and fill the earth. Right? Those instructions were given uh, earlier on. And they weren't really instructions to the created order, but they were supposed to. They were made male and female so that they would multiply and fill the earth, right, and, and, and team and, and swarm and all that stuff, right? And we're supposed to do the same thing, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, uh, the same instruction, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? So we're creaturely, uh, we have communication, male and female, um, we're supposed to multiply in the earth, okay, so we've got some things in common with other animals, right? Same creator, same origin, right? Um, same creator, though, though there is a difference even there, right? Because man is fashioned, right? There's, there's, there's a difference there. There's a, yeah. And so um, what's different? How is man created different um, from the creatures? How is he different from the creatures? God did that. God, God did the molding himself, right? Okay. Fish are fit for water. Birds are fish for air. Man is fit for the earth. We're fit for the earth. All right. Um, which could be similar to a, a cow, right? Fit, fit for life on the earth. But yeah, there's... But our reaction, our relationship to the other animals, you know, and God placed us in dominion. Yeah. Yes. So there is a position of dominion over uh, those sorts of things. So, all right. Um, the, yeah, so there's a... There, that's good. So go, go to chapter 2 and verse 7. So here's, the, here's the, the context of man being formed from the dust of the ground. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's, a, there's an emphasis there on something special about the nature of man's soul. That man is different. Man is similar, but on a different, but on a different plane. What's that? It was breathed into us by God. By God himself, right? Uh, there's also a distinction in the timing of man's creation. It was after God had made the other creatures. He makes, uh, he makes man in 126. We see that. Right? Uh, we also have the nature of his soul, we just said. The purpose of his creation. Go back to 126, 127. You see the purpose of our creation there. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the likeness of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. And so their purpose of uh, creation there is dominion, to exercise dominion. There's a, there's a lordship over the created order that man has that no one else has. No other creature has that same kind of relationship. The uh, chimpanzee may be 
whatever percentage scientists say they are similar to us or whatever, but there's a distinct difference in the roles we have in creation. Chimps don't have dominion, and we, and we do, right? And so um, that's, that's, that's wrapped up in what it means to be um, uh, it, it created there in the image of God. I like, I like the language of the confession here um, in the middle of the paragraph, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. That there's a special capacity that man has that no other creature has to relate to God in a unique way. In, in the realm of our knowledge and righteousness, capacity for holiness, etc. Those things are unique for us that we and only we were created in the image of God. If I could get um, someone from the back two tables, please, to go to Ecclesiastes 7.29, and then someone from the front two tables, Romans 2.14 and 15, please. All right, so when you find Ecclesiastes 7.29, read out for us, please. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, this kind of goes to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about the, uh, the, 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 the moral uprightness of man, at least in his, in his creation. But they have sought out many schemes, right? And so you have this reflection um, on the idea of man's original goodness and uprightness in his creation, but... Um, of course, we see something different, and maybe, uh, maybe that has um, all gone away. What do we see there in, in Romans two fourteen and fifteen? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do not do the law, what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that they that the word of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All right. So here we have Paul reflecting uh, thousands of years after uh, Genesis chapter one and chapter two, reflecting on the idea of the Gentiles having the law written in their hearts. Have you thought about that? That if you think about, if you think about the fact that man knows essentially, not perfectly, but essentially what is right. Now, doing it is a different matter, but they know it. And that's, that's why you can catch a liar in their lie because they know it's wrong what they're doing. Even though they want to, they're going to benefit from it. They're going to stick with it, right? But you can see that they, they're recognizing in their brain there's something wrong. And so what's, what's happening here in this passage is that Paul is saying that, that the Gentiles, when they, they don't have the law, they didn't, they didn't grow up on the Ten Commandments, they didn't grow up with Moses and all that, they, they don't have the law, but when they by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, that man 
has been created with a moral capacity and a basic moral understanding of what is right and wrong. Now, of course, sinful man does his level best to destroy that, to argue against it philosophically, to act against it, to try and harden his own heart. Um, Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth and all those things. But, but when you think about the distinction between man as a creature, as a created uh, being, in contrast to a chimpanzee or a dog or any other, uh, any other created being in that way, we have a unique moral capacity and a knowledge for what is right and good. A knowledge and ability to distinguish, however imperfectly, however uh, it's been warped by sin, etc. That's a unique thing about us, is that, uh, that moral capacity, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. The confession says, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. What do we see happen in chapter 3 and verse 6? Though instruction had been given, though command had been given uh, about um, not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yet Sneak, sneak into the garden and um, begin this conversation with Eve that culminates in this moment. So when Eve, six of chapter three, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he the eyes were both were opened, and and the rest is history, right? But you have you have here in. Man, in his original created state, with the law of God written in his heart, with the power to, to fulfill that law, in other words, Adam and Eve could have obeyed. They could have resisted that temptation, but they didn't do so. They gave in. They, 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 uh, she took of that fruit she gave to her husband who was standing there like a dunce, uh, observing passively what was going on. Um, and he takes of it, and the New Testament talks about the fact that there was a degree of deception that she, that Eve was deceived by the serpent when she took it. There was, but the man was fully aware. It was just rebellion on his part. It wasn't confusion. It wasn't uh, that he had been tricked. She had been tricked. He had not. He was there with her, and he took it. But here you have you have this um, operation of. Uh, their ability to choose good and evil. And, and they could have, in their own capacity, chosen to obey in this, in this situation. They didn't. So they were created with a free will. They were created with an ability to choose good or evil, right? So then the question arises for us, how is the will of man different after the fall in contrast to how it was before the fall? How is the will of man different? Was, let's start this way. Was the will of man free in the garden before the fall? Adam and Eve, their will was free, right? They had the ability to choose. They had the free ability to choose. And they didn't have some sort of uh, dark side or, or sin nature 
predisposing them to choose towards a sinful path. They had the free ability. They, they were free in a way um, that, that, is, that is amazing to think about their capacity to be able to obey in that situation. Well, let's think about that in comparison to our situation, to man after the fall. Yeah, so we've got this sin nature which causes us to want to disobey, right? Sometimes in major ways and sometimes in the sneakiest little ways that make me look good and feel good, but there's still rebellion, right? Yeah, no ability not to sin, right? And so they're, they're, they're to this point where they're twisted. Let's, let's look at a couple of passages. Go to Genesis chapter 6. And I, I always appreciate... Um, how close this passage and the next one we're going to look at are, right? So Genesis chapter 6, um, we see that the flood is about to happen. And why did the flood happen? Because of the, the, the wickedness on the earth. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, listen, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of modifiers. It wasn't just that, that uh, man had bad thoughts, right? It's, it's spelled out in, in great detail. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, right? That's, that's what's going on in the heart of man. Well, so because of that, God sends the flood, wipes out all of humanity except for one family. And so we have a statement after the flood, maybe that's all been resolved. I mean, maybe that was a particularly awful generation. And, and God wiped them out, and we, and we got started with a, a clean slate, a fresh, uh, a fresh start. Look at chapter 8 and verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for this is after the fall, or after the flood, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And we can carry that on and see, of course, Romans chapter 3. That's spelled out in a number of other places as well. The difference before and after the fall is amazing. Now, in this sense, we still have free will, don't we? We make choices. We do what we want to do, don't we? The problem, the, the, the difficulty there is in the what we want part. Right? Adam and Eve... They were faced, they, 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 they didn't have any sin in their past. They didn't have any sin nature. They didn't have any experience of rebellion. They didn't have any example of rebellion to look at. They didn't have any of that. It was free and the choice was before them. And, and, and there was nothing in their want to that was, that was warping their decision. What about, what about you and what about me? There's something messed up in our want to. So when we choose what we want to do, the problem is, is in the want to, right? And so that's what's being addressed here in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 8. And uh, Paul does very clearly and thoroughly in Romans chapter 3 that there's a, there's a brokenness and a sinfulness that's entered in that we still have a free will, but it's not an unaffected free will. It's affected by that, that heart of sin that still wants to find an angle to... To, to, to disobey God, maybe in a good way or a way that will appear to be good to others or something like that. But there's still that thing that we've got within us that's, that's, that's a sin nature. So there's a difference between us and Adam and Eve. 
There's a similarity between us and Adam and Eve. And there's a difference between us and them as well. So in summary about this paragraph itself, what is this paragraph rejecting or ruling out? I would say it's ruling out evolution or any other non-biblical theory of man's origin. I would say it's also uh, ruling out um, the concept of a non-binary person, that we've been created in the image of God, uh, male and female. Right? He created man male and female. Uh, and so this, this um, paragraph here addresses the topic of so many of the conversations that, that we're having in our culture right now about what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and can you change sides um, or, or something like that. Can, can hormones and surgery and, uh, and, a, and a different name or something like that um, make you the opposite sex? But no, in, in Scripture, it's clear. And, and the confession here is just, just, just reasserting what Scripture says on the topic, that we were made male and female. That God, by His design, God in His, in his action, in his, in his decision of how He would make uh, you and me, made a choice. Male and female. And so that's rooted right into the fabric of what it means uh, for us to be created by God um, and in his image. And so this, this, could be, this could be more thoroughly developed and, and whatever ends up happening uh, in the future when we, whether we end up making the um, Second London Confession our um, statement of faith um, and, and we're, we're looking at that, that's why we're examining this. Whether that happens or not though, uh, we in the culture we live in need to adopt a statement as a church of, that clarifies more specifically on these issues because it's the, it's the topic of the day that our world is dealing with. And so we need to be able to make a, 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 a clear statement on that. And so that, that's something that we will have to look into. All right, paragraph three. You don't think I'm going to make it, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> paragraph three, three here is on the topic of positive law. Positive law, all right? So besides the law written in the hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. And so what you see here in all of chapter 4 is we're looking at man, we're looking at man in his um, pre-fall state. We're going to address the topic of the fall in chapter 6. Uh, but we're, we're addressing man in his pre-fall state, so there's this great communion. There's this wonderful, uh, wonderful relationship between God and man. And, um, and so he says, it's, it starts off here, and it says, besides the law written in their hearts, the law written in their hearts that was referred to in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, right? Uh, the law that, that, that people know that there is a right and wrong, and they have a rough estimate of what that is, though they don't obey it, that's, that's, that's natural law. That's moral law. That's, that's something that we can look at the world and observe and say, it is bad for one person to murder another person. Right? So the, the law is visible and understandable in nature. And therefore, in light of that being the case, it is commanded. Because it is good, 
or evil, depending upon what we're talking about. Because it is good or evil in itself, therefore it is commanded. Don't murder. Right? So we see that, was it wrong for Cain to kill Abel? Yes, thank you. When does the command, you shall not murder, come? A lot later. <laughs> right? A lot later. Was it wrong for Cain to kill Abel? Yes, because it's natural. We understand that that's evil. And so in itself, that is uh, an understanding in nature of what is right and wrong. And so that command is given. That is a, a natural law. But there is such a thing as a positive law. Positive law is something that in and of itself is not bad. Was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil itself bad? No. It was eating fruit from a tree. There's nothing inherently good or evil <clears throat> about that. But God commanded, stay away from that. And so therefore, in light of the command, was it wrong for them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, right? That's positive law, right? Positive law is when something is commanded or forbidden, and therefore, in light of that command, it is good or evil. Natural law is something that in itself is good or evil, and we have commands about it, okay? And the reason that is brought up is because this is a confession written by Baptists who want to maintain a distinction between the role of circumcision in the Old Covenant and the role of baptism in the New Covenant, okay? And so it's important for us to understand that, that those, uh, those commands to baptize infants, is that a moral law? Is it morally better to baptize, or excuse me, to circumcise an infant under the Old Covenant? Is it morally better to do that? No. It had to be commanded by God. Well, when we come to baptism, we're under a new covenant. Is it, is it just better to, is it morally good to baptize infants of itself? No, we would require a command. And what do we not find in Scripture? As Baptists, we want to point out very quickly, we find no command to baptize infants. So they're, they're making a distinction here between positive law and natural law, okay? All right, so that's creation, fast and furious. Uh, but we made it all the way through. Um, I don't think there's anything really um, enormous in there. The idea of positive law and natural law is going to come up later um, as we discuss baptism uh, for those reasons. But um, the rest of it is, is pretty well straightforward, though it's very well detailed um, and, uh, and spelled out for us. So thank you for holding on to your seat while we went very quickly. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you have created us. We owe you uh, our, our next breath. We owe you the, uh, the next uh, beat of our heart. We owe you our very existence. And we are grateful that you have created us. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in, in creation as we look around us at the, at the trees and the change of seasons and the, and the, the, the beauty of nature and, and the things we see under microscopes or through telescopes. In our own heart, we see evidence that you are our creator. You've revealed yourself to us. But we are grateful that you haven't stopped there, but you've given us your word. You have uh, spoken to us by your Holy Spirit inspiring writers to write down your very words to us, and thus we have revelation from you. You've communicated yourself to us, and we are grateful most of all for Jesus, who is that final communication, who gave himself for us, who gives us his own righteousness by faith in him. And we have forgiveness of sins in his sacrifice. 
And we thank you for Jesus. That final word to us, we rejoice in him and we pray in his name. Amen.